it's Imogen from Squarepeg. If you keep up with the Aussie tech news, this week you'll have read that one of the OGs of the Aussie startup ecosystem, Rocked, just closed an $18 million round. That's $80 million US. And we're lucky to have timed this week's episode perfectly because we're going to hear the story of Rocked CEO, Bruce Buchanan. Now, we invested in Bruce and the Rock team seven years ago, so only about a year into the Rock journey. And in that first meeting, at first glance, Rock was a small business with a small team in a crummy office on the wrong side of the highway. It had all the hallmarks of any other regular new business. Sometimes you'll hear about investments and you think, oh yeah, the company operates in a hot industry like space or clean meat or SPACs. But Bruce was building a company that fell somewhere between e-commerce and ad tech. So this was not a particularly sexy investment thematic. Ad tech had had a run a few years earlier and wasn't exactly the new kid on the block. But what this company did have was Bruce. Bruce is, without a doubt, one of the best business builders to come out of the Australian tech ecosystem. And in this episode, you'll learn why. Why the crummy office didn't matter. Why the perception of ad tech as hot or not didn't matter. Why the side of the highway didn't matter. We start our story back when Bruce was a kid, learning how to make money by selling painted rocks on the side of the road. We'd come back from the UK and my dad struggled to get work. And so he used to go to Balmain markets and sell a whole bunch of uh, stuff to actually pay the bills. And it was a real lesson in in life for me in terms of when the need is there, you can always create income if you work hard enough. There's always a way to work your way through any challenges in life. And he used to go to auctions and buy stuff and sell it at the markets. It was pretty tough living. But one of the things I learned as a kid was, um, you know, wow, you can buy stuff and do stuff with it and sell it. And I guess mirroring somewhat of what I saw my father doing, I decided I would embark on similar ventures and find stuff around the house that I could do up or paint or, you know, toys that I didn't want. And I'd go up and sell them uh, up on the street corner on the weekend. So it was like my mini version of the markets. Um, But yeah, that's a true story. Embarrassing one, but a true story. (laughs) I personally think this is adorable. But anyway, Bruce mostly spent his childhood in a couple of places. He spent a little time in primary school in the UK, his mum's home country, a little time of junior high in the US, his dad's home country, and his teenage years on the Central Coast, where his mum's family were from. His school was the only local high school in a place called The Entrance. And as Bruce described it, it was pretty rough. It was sort of like a melting pot. There was only really one high school there. There wasn't like the stratification that you see now in a lot of suburbs in Sydney and Melbourne. You had everyone from the milkman son to the daughter of the local GP and everyone in between was sort of going to the same school. So that was kind of interesting growing up. And uh, I grew up from you know, around 13 through to 18 at that school and mainly living in Baba Bay, although my mum passed away when I was 16. And then the last uh, couple of years of school, I stayed with friends and spent some time with grandparents and a variety of other things to make sure I finished high school and didn't drop out. So it wasn't the easiest of years for Bruce. And dropping out of high school was a pretty likely outcome for a kid at Bruce's school. In fact, it was more common for kids to drop out before 18 than it was for them to go on to any form of higher education. They became tradespeople or, you know, they pursued a TAFE course. And so that was a risk only in that that was a normal path. I mean, I was fortunate that um, my friends were more academically inclined and I was interested in education and I was doing well in school. But the normal path would have been to leave. And I think the compound of what happened to me in year 10 and 11 would probably would have made that an easier path to take. But I was passionate about getting out of that mold uh, that I saw a lot of kids get into when they were, you know, went down a path of getting out of school early and not really pursuing education. So even as a 16, 17-year-old, Bruce knew that his best option was to invest in his education. But because of his personal, somewhat financially insecure circumstances, He needed to get creative. I'd started my first business actually in the last couple of years of high school to get myself through. 
and it was really just to pay the bills and to survive and so i was doing handyman work and mowing lawns but i started to recruit some people at high school that worked for me so i could service uh, all the clients that i needed to service and through a series of things that i'd been doing newspaper rounds and a couple of other things to build clients up i sort of really got a taste for managing projects and thinking about uh, what that entailed and i really didn't feel like i had any idea how to manage people i just sort of by necessity fell into having to do it uh, to pay my way through the last few years of high school and so when I got through high school, I didn't really know what I wanted to do, but I'd really enjoyed managing these projects for people. And I thought engineering would be a good, especially civil engineering, would be a good base degree where I'd learn contracts and managing projects and managing teams and all of those sorts of things. So I thought, why not? I don't really know what I want to do. So yeah, I leaned in and went and did civil engineering, not because I wanted to be a civil engineer, just because I thought it would give me some good skills that I could use in whatever I did next. Bruce's first real professional foray into business building was at university, helping manufacturers with assistive technology. And it taught him one of his simplest business lessons. It doesn't matter how brilliant you are, if you're in a declining market, say manufacturing in Sydney in the early 90s, it's going to be a tough slog. Yeah, it was, a, it was a weird story like all of these stories. And so I had a passion and interest for computers and through high school and actually through primary school, I started to get into computers and I started building my first computer very young. I built a knockoff Apple IIe at the time and a II Plus. And then through that started to buy and sell computers on the side as well through high school and really enjoyed actually getting into building them and understanding how they worked and starting to play around with the first basic programming uh, languages. Uh, and so when I started university, I went and applied for a job for a company that worked in uh, computer-aided design. They're helping manufacturing firms in Australia. And at the time, actually, it was quite a flourishing manufacturing sector in Sydney and uh, they were getting quite a bit of work uh, helping them with putting in computer aid design and how to connect traditionally old lathes and uh, machine shops to more computer assisted technology and that was definitely the way the whole world was going and so i got into that and interesting enough through that i started to work part-time and then <laughs> through the latter parts of my engineering degree the owner of that business wanted to exit the pc portion of it and he wanted to focus purely on the mainframe. The margins on the mainframe stuff and the, and the higher end stuff was much, much bigger and there were bigger deals. But I really enjoyed and was passionate about the volume and understanding how to work with lots of clients and the size of problems you'd actually work with. So I did a deal with him to actually buy the PC piece of the business off him and uh, did, a, did a deal where I paid him back over three years because I didn't have any capital. <laughs> but he was going to exit the business anyway, so it was like money for jam for him. And so my part-time job became a business that I purchased uh, part the way through uh, my engineering degree. And I think by third year, I was, full, I was studying full-time or working full-time trying to build this business. And so that was how I got into my second probably business venture, which was really another sort of weird and wonderful uh, story of just fate that just sort of led me to that, that part. It was an interesting learning exercise for me. I wouldn't say I was very successful at all. I did reasonably well at paying my way through and supporting myself through business school, but I didn't really have an exit. And at the same time, the real challenge we had in that business was the market went against us. So we were serving these small manufacturing businesses in Sydney and through deregulation and industry structural changes, they all disappeared. They all went out of business. And so one by one, every six months, you'd find your client list had gotten slightly smaller because the number of clients you could serve was getting less in the Australian marketplace. And I think the key lesson I learned there, it doesn't matter how good you are in your business and how good you are in terms of solving all the problems with your team. If you're in a shitty market that's declining, there's not a lot you can do to get out of that. Bruce had built his assistive technology business into a pretty successful outfit. It was a tough market, sure, but he'd done a good job considering. And he was also proud to have learned some business skills along the way. And he mostly felt that while this wasn't the business to do really well with, his abilities were trending in the right direction. But he figured there had to be an easier way to upskill than just to work everything out from first principles all of the time. And so he packed up the business 
and went back to school. I went to business school really because I wanted to work out how businesses work. <laughs> I thought, okay, I've run two businesses, I've done okay, but I really haven't been able to make them shine. And I think it might be good to reflect and learn a little bit about how they work. Went to the Australian Graduate School of Management at the time. They had a great full-time program, which allowed me to do that and still be based in Sydney with family and kids. And that sort of worked out well and uh, really enjoyed it. Actually, I really enjoyed the time to reflect and think. I think when you've really struggled in a problem space, like running a business, then to walk into a course on operations or marketing where you're studying the theory, but you've got the practical stuff behind you, I found really interesting, just the time to reflect on my own experiences and to network and meet people with different backgrounds and very different experiences was a wonderful uh, couple of years of personal growth. And halfway through that, they have recruiting nights where the consulting firms come on and the banks come on and tech businesses come onto campus and they will try and recruit you into whatever their their particular industry or business is. And when the consulting businesses came into campus, I'd never heard of strategy consulting. I didn't know it was an industry. (laughs) I had no real concept that that's what I wanted to do. But they found their presentation and the problems that they were presenting fascinating. And I really loved building businesses. I loved consumer. I loved this problem-solving space. And they seem to be solving really important problems for big businesses in a way that I thought would be really curious and would be great for my personal growth. I also, because I'd worked in all these small businesses, thought the opportunity to actually work through a consulting firm on these big business problems would give me an exposure on how big businesses work. And that might actually help me in terms of understanding how to get a business from small to large. You know, what is it that defines a big business and how are they successful? And so that was why I ended up going there over the summer. Joining BCG radically increased the surface area that Bruce had with interesting problems in businesses. He'd bounce from one project to another, amassing skills while working on just really interesting, complex problems. It was a job in which he thrived. And so that's why I went into BCG and it proved out to be that, you know, I went in and I worked on a lot of stuff that I was fascinated, consumer behavior, branding, loyalty programs, marketing, Uh, I worked in fast-moving consumer goods and airlines. Uh, I worked in lots of different countries. They had a top 1% program that allowed me to go work in different places and I could get this wonderful experience working on some of the biggest problems. I worked on things like US steel towers when they were trying to block uh, cheap imports coming out of Asia and advising big US companies like US Steel and the US government. And I worked on the airline industry after 9-11 in the US. Um, So I saw these fascinating problems and got got exposed to amazing people and uh, really, really enjoyed it. And so that was my experience in consulting. There were three core lessons that Bruce took away from his five years of consulting at BCG. The first was about people. The second was sheer knowledge. And the third was problem solving. The thing that I took with me that uh, is uh, BCG have an interesting framework for evaluating people, which I've used in part of it, not all of it, but a significant part of it in an ongoing way in the rest of my career, which I found very useful. They have a good way of uncovering, you know, raw intellectual capability. Uh, They have a good way of dovetailing into what I would call, you know, resilience, tenacity and drive. And they're some of the core components that I used when I was recruiting my team at Jetstone, same when I've been recruiting and building the team at Rock. So, Definitely a lot of stuff on the people side I took with me. There was a lot of technical knowledge that I built up through working on cases and writing presentations and understanding how to be succinct. And it really refined also my belief in first principle problem solving, which is always go back to that root cause of what the problem is you're trying to address. And so that was a really important skill. I think I honed at BCG as well. And the ability to have comfort with ambiguity when you're solving problems and the ability to operate a level of abstraction that you can move quickly in and out. I found incredibly useful in, in moving quickly through complex problems and organizing them in my, in my head. So they were two things that I took out of consulting that I thought were great skills that have served me well. Bruce Buchanan was kind of a big deal in Australia before Rocked. And if you Google him, you'll find troves of articles on the details. But the top line is this. 
In the early 2000s, Australia's two major airline carriers, Qantas and Amset, were in an intense war for customers. And in February 2002, Amset collapsed, sending the entire domestic airline industry into a spin. And into the breach stepped Virgin Blue. Now, Qantas had long been the ritzy national carrier. You were fancy to fly Qantas. And you were now budget smart to fly Virgin. And with Ansa out of the picture, Virgin was rapidly eating into the market, comfortably taking up the second spot to Qantas. And it was in this context that the Qantas executive team, notably the future CEO of Qantas, Alan Joyce, sought help from a couple of bright sparks at BCG. I've never actually been purposely planning my career. I've always been one that uh, leans into things that I'm passionate about and success tends to follow. So I always find if I'm doing things that I enjoy, I just lean in and do them more and more and, you know, things eventuate (laughs) um, that tend to unfold, whether that's running a business at a young age, buying a business. I definitely lean in heavily into the opportunity when I'm interested. I try and find a way to get heavily involved in it. But I'm not the sort of person that goes, you know, like Machiavellian plans out, okay, how do I get to X? I'm more like, this is a really interesting problem. Let's lean in and solve it. And I found when I'm passionate about something, the opportunities tend to follow. So in the case of the Jetstar business case, it was actually a very unusual path that ended up unfolding, which I was in the US working on Delta Airlines at the time and got asked by the team in Qantas, uh, primarily Jeff Dixon, to come back and lead the team writing the business case for uh, Jetstar. Uh, At the time, it was a Qantas low-cost carrier. It wasn't called Jetstar. Uh, And that was because I'd worked on the redesign of the Qantas loyalty program earlier on when the low-cost airline battle erupted. And we'd done a pretty amazing job, I think, in helping Qantas really strengthen their hold on the corporate and high yield market. And that made a big difference when they had a real competitive threat. And that ultimately, I think, tipped the scales between themselves and ANSET and resolved in ANSET. You know, uh, we all know the history with ANSET in Australia. And so that was a, a fascinating project. While most people would look at a low-cost carrier and understand that it's maybe they would think it's an operational problem, he understood in reality a full-service airline starting a low-cost carrier is going to be more of a commercial branding problem. Um, to have to have a successful business and so that's because of my experience in loyalty and commercial and brand and my passion for that um, I was asked to come back and write lead the team and ultimately the lead client was Alan Joyce so on day one Alan and I (laughs) started working together building the business case for uh, Jetstar and I formed the BCG team around me and he pulled together the Qantas team Um, and then we went through you know the next three or four months two board presentations and ultimately it was a pretty exciting day when we got uh, the board approval and they gave us a billion dollars to go set up Jetstar it was like this Amazing day, I'll always remember. And Alan came out so excited because, uh, you know, he had uh, something that we'd worked towards. And then then it was the 10 years just disappeared. You know, I don't know what happened after that. I, I, I was supposed to stay on for three to six months afterwards and help set it up. And Jeff had asked me to do that. And then it ended up being 10 years. And I stepped down as group CEO in 2012. So <laughs> but it wasn't, none of it was planned. It just sort of happened that way. Now, one of the most famous components of Qantas's strategy was the Qantas loyalty program. Nearly half of the country in Australia are members now, and it has been noted as one of the key reasons that Qantas survived during the price wars that erupted with Virgin during the 2000s. And right at the heart of the program redesign was Bruce. Yeah, I think uh, loyalty programs are like half science, half art. They're like this really interesting mix of any sort of, like they're like the true essence of any commercial proposition where how do I actually create the energy and excitement around something and the passion? And so that's all about, you know, what's the perceived value of this thing and how is it going to change behavior? And then on the other side, how do I make the science work? You know, the currency, the dollars, the ins and outs, which is a very hard, it's a very, very important thing, but you're dealing with breakage. You're actually dealing with the fundamentals of how a currency works, which is how loyalty program. And you've got these two interesting problems that are going to come together. Because ultimately it only works if you change behavior. And so the, the really interesting insight for me was the different levers that were really important as you went through that. So we did a whole bunch of really interesting things. We, we created tiering levels that were much more attractive so that it created this much stronger retention element. We created much more emotional, aspirational value in the program 
through things like upping the perceived value of the international attractiveness of what would be a very high reward, like allowing international upgrades, for instance, when you go into New York and first class seats. And so we did a whole bunch of changes there. And then we did one other big change, which was fascinating in consumer behavior, which is we created lifetime recognition uh, awards. And, and probably they're probably the three of the biggest things that jump out to me. In the end, they gave me a special uh, frequent flyer card, which I've still got today, which is uh, membership number 007. So I am Qantas member 007 after redesign of the Qantas frequent flyer program. And I worked with a client, his name is Mark Emerson. And afterwards, he was so chuffed with the work we'd done. He got me the special card and the special number, and I hold it to this day. <laughs> so in 2003, Bruce, our very own Qantas Bond, left BCG to start what he thought was a secondment to Jetstar. It was the start of a decade-long journey to build one of the most successful new airlines in the world, but it felt right at the beginning, just like any other startup. Yeah, it was very startup culture. Um, we were in an office in North Sydney and we had a small group of people on the floor right after we got approval from the board and we just started moving. And we had effectively most of the team, not even all the team that had been working on the business case come into it. And then we had to quickly build people. We had to build people to build websites and we had to negotiate to get a red system on board and we had to get a call center set up. And it was just nonstop. We were doing brand building. We were getting people to run marketing and we're recruiting at the same time as defining stuff and so it was very startup but very intense startup like the pace of decision making and the things we did in a very short period of time were incredible so in the space of about two and a half months we built the brand we built the website we deployed the res system we trained and set up the call center and basically set up the whole commercial enterprise we negotiated telecommunications deals. We negotiated merchant service agreements. We set up the companies. <laughs> Everything was done in a, in a very short period of time. And interestingly enough, on the operational side, we were able to use, uh, Jeff had bought a business that went under called Impulse through the first low fares wars. And that became the shell of the operating entity. So it was still pilots and cabin crew employed in that entity, which was great but it didn't have any commercial proposition. So we had to build out everything from scratch. And so we were defining brand and name and everything, colors, you know, you name it. And it was such an exciting time. And there were so many things that we decided so quickly. And you realize when you're operating at speed with great people, you can do some incredible things. What seems impossible can actually be done. And that was probably one of the greatest two or three months of, uh, you know, achieving some incredible outcomes. And then we had one of the biggest airline launches in the world that ever happened on the 25th of Feb. So it was pretty, pretty amazing. The launch on February 25th was so successful that it nearly crashed the service. In some ways, it was both the launch of the dreams and the nightmares. When we went live on sale, we'd been so busy scrambling to get everything done and we built everything, deployed it, and then we went on sale. And there was so much volume, so much interest. We launched $29 fares, which had never been seen in Australia at the time. And it just crashed the website. Pretty much every Australian, I think, tried to buy a $29 fare. That night when we went on sale and the next day when we officially launched was probably one of the stressful, most stressful days. But the team came together in the most amazing way. It's sort of this great lesson in you know, how teams react to really tough times. We scrambled together pretty much every PC, every piece of computer, and we just kept putting more and more capacity in our data warehouse slash hosting area. And we ended up selling, having this amazing day with never went offline and having this massive biggest ever launch at Navitaire, which is the number one rare system for low-cost carriers it ever had, and I think they've ever, ever had today. But it was very stressful when the reports on the first day was the number of people that couldn't buy one. Richard Branson, the founder of Virgin, once said, if you want to be a millionaire, start with a billion dollars and launch a new airline. By which measure, Bruce, Allen, and the Jetstar team truly bucked the trend. Jetstar is well known for having saved the Qantas brand, but the intent of Branson's message in that airlines are wildly expensive is absolutely true. One of Qantas's recent orders for the Airbus A321 will cost about 115 million US dollars. So costs are gigantic. And to operate a low-cost carrier, well, it's just even more intense. 
Low-cost airlines are a little bit different. You need a lot of capital for the aircraft, so most of the capital is spoken for. Even And the way Qantas works, like a lot of large airlines, is it doesn't matter whether you're leasing them or buying the aircraft because they effectively are affecting the balance sheet. You need approval for the full capital spend. So the operating components are not anywhere near significant, but the operating component requires a different discipline. You know that the win or lose in this market is how much you can sustain low fares in the marketplace because... The consumers at the bottom of the market are buying very much on uh, low fares and you're stimulating a huge part of the market based on low fares. And the ability to sustainably do that is the ability to have low cost. And so every other decision you're making on operating costs is with a mindset, I must be lowest cost if I'm going to win this battle in the long run. So it, require, it creates this incredible discipline around every dollar you spend, every deal you do, every commercial negotiation you have to do. So you become very scrappy and you realize you don't need to spend a lot of money to get great outcomes. And everything we did, I mean, we did some crazy things. I mean, Qantas was one of the largest merchants in the country in terms of credit card processing. They were one of the largest users of telephone inbound calling from Telstra. We negotiated better rates than Qantas had for merchant service fees. We negotiated better rates with Optus for inbound telephony than uh, Qantas did with Telstra. And so this was also a good catalyst for change for Qantas. It was quite disconcerting at the time, but also a real eye-opener about what you can do if you get aggressive around you know, focusing in on costs and making sure you go for a better deal. So we were relentlessly focused on how do we ensure we can continue to put the lowest fees in the marketplace because we knew that would be the thing that would define our long-term success. This capital-conscious mindset was something that Bruce absolutely carried into his time at Rocked. But sticking with Qantas and Jetstar for a moment, Bruce had been working as the chief commercial officer with Alan Joyce as CEO at Jetstar, and in 2008, they both got a promotion. Alan to the CEO of Qantas Group and Bruce to the CEO of Jetstar. And they were thrilled. In 2008, the really good thing is when Alan got the role as uh, group CEO for Qantas, it meant that we could pull, for the first time, pull all of the Jetstar components together in a way that made much more sense. And so I was excited about the next phase. And we did a lot then with things like Jetstar Japan. We rolled out Jetstar New Zealand. We did a lot with the long haul Jetstar business. And we did a lot to consolidate the franchise model and the structure of the business and bring it together under a single business. So that was the first time that happened in 2008, which was great um, and was really, you know, the result of the leadership transition at Qantas. So from my perspective, it was all about, you know, have we got an interesting opportunity to continue to build and solve interesting problems uh, in the evolution of this business called Jetstar? And that's what I was most excited about. And there was a huge number of opportunities in the early years there. As Bruce drove the company from a startup to a scale-up to a more business-as-usual business, he realized that his interest in becoming the long-term figurehead of a defensively positioned, low-cost airline just wasn't going to keep his attention for long. It was a tough decision at the time. I had to make a decision effectively around where was Jetstar and what could I continue to do or was I the best person to continue to lead it? Alan at the time was also very keen for me to come back into the Qantas group and help with the turnaround of Qantas International. And I knew that wasn't going to be the right role for me. And so there was a combination of, you know, the point where the growth rate at Jetstar was going to slow because of the shareholder airlines wanted to use it more as a vehicle to serve the bottom end of the market and protect the business, but not to aggressively go after new growth opportunities. So the growth profile changed. Also, none of my team actually owned equity in Jetstar, and that was something that was always a bit of a rub. We couldn't, you know, you couldn't attract the right talent that was actually passionate about owning a piece of a, a building. And then there was, you know, this lens of the next phase of the opportunity, what I should do next. And so all those came together with a lens of, I think now it's time to pass the baton to someone. And I'd also, through that period of time, spent a lot of time thinking about the commercial aspects of the Jetstar business and realizing that Jetstar, like a lot of low-fares airlines, was one of the pioneers in direct-to-consumer businesses. You know, low-cost airlines 50 years ago, 60 years ago, were bypassing travel agents and selling direct-to-consumers. And we realized through the latter part, the last three or four years of Jetstar, that the importance of this interactive moment with the consumer was so critical to get right 
and you could double the profitability of the airline if you got it right. But it was a really tough problem to solve. And when we looked around the world at Jetstar to find technology partners that could help us solve that problem, there just wasn't any. And so when I saw that and um, you know, I said, look, Jetstar's now a business of $10 billion of capital. It's 14,000 people working to deliver the product. Imagine you could double the profitability of a business with a piece of technology for a small business in Asia Pac relative to the global opportunity. Imagine if you could take that on a global scale. And that's what I got excited about. And I thought, well, that's a problem. I want to solve it, yes, and I can't. So let me go into a business where I can actually, I'll set up a business and I'll do it and I'll solve it from scratch. And that's where Rock was born. Let's pause here to make sure that we understand what Bruce just said. At Jetstar, Bruce realized that at the moment when a customer was completing a transaction on a ticket, they also had other problems to solve at that moment, say, to book a hotel or to arrange transport. Then they would have to go off into other parts of the internet using another hour of their day to research a book that Bruce thought he could automate. His assessment was, that if you can bring all of these elements together from different businesses to provide the perfect tailored experience from a customer, you dramatically increase conversion, reduce cost to serve, and ultimately improve the experience for the customer. This was the software that Bruce wanted, and this was the business he decided to go build. So I had this vision of solving this Jetstar problem. How do we make e-commerce smarter, faster, and better? And how would we double the profitability of an airline like Jetstar, which would be transformational in terms of opening up new routes and really enable them to do really exciting stuff that they couldn't do today. And so then I said, how am I going to do this? And I started looking around the world at how would I even start to build a product like that? And at that point in time, I ran into a guy called Justin Viles. And Justin was ex-Google and had started a business called Rock Live. And Rock Live was like almost like this crazy advertising business that was half affiliate marketing. It was doing half email marketing. But Justin had this interesting creative vision that he'd sold into Ticketek, which was the first partner that I thought could be a good seed spot for my e-commerce vision. And he'd sold it as a way to do digital advertising in a different way for Ticketek on the confirmation page. And so... I ended up saying to him, well, look, I'll buy the company and you'll come on as an equal founder uh, and we will transform the business from what it has been doing, which is digital advertising and affiliate marketing and agency type work. And we'll focus 100% on doing this e-commerce mission. And he was excited by that. And I put in some capital. A company I had in Singapore actually bought the old Rock Live business. We shut down about 80% of what was happening in that business and ultimately rebranded it to Rocks. And it became focused 100% on uh, how we make e-commerce smarter, faster, better. So that was how I was born. And, and really the seed and the thing that I was excited about was this accelerator, which we had a few clients like Ticketek already on board. And we were going to use that as a way to accelerate uh, getting towards our mission. And that turned out to be a, a wise move because then, you know, 12 months later, we did the uh, Series A and then, you know, went on to do all the other bits and pieces, uh, which... SquarePeg's been a partner with all the way along. (laughs) So Bruce joined a fledgling startup as a CEO and co-founder and has spent the last eight years building Rocked into the organization that it is today, generating well over $100 million in revenue. So smash cut to today, here's what Rocked does. You know, we're eight years in, but I would say we're still only early on our journey to make e-commerce smarter, faster, better. We have a very ambitious goal, which is we believe that every experience and action in an e-commerce or in a transaction moment for any e-commerce companies uh, should be smarter, faster and better, both for the customer and also for the e-commerce operator. And that involves a couple of important things that we realized. One was we realized that an e-commerce transaction actually involves the intersection of lots of third-party businesses coming together. It's not actually just one company. You know, there's a shipping company, there's a payment processes, there's payment companies, there's marketing tech that gets integrated. There's all sorts of things that have to happen in unison for a successful e-commerce transaction to happen. And therefore, for a long time, businesses have leaned out of actually trying to make that personalized and relevant because it was so hard just to make an e-commerce transaction happen to coordinate all those different things. But the thought of actually optimizing around a customer just was too challenging. And that's where we had that moment where we started eight years ago. I said, look, this is a problem we think is worth solving. It's a tough problem to solve, but it's worth a lot of money if we can solve it. 
it will transform the e-commerce companies that we work with. And that's really the problem we've been set out trying to solve. We started, uh, first of all, taking all the advertising off in e-commerce, typically display ads and converting them into native ads. We then moved into all the marketing integration, so all the CRM app downloads, all that sort of stuff. We then took over the full experience of the confirmation page and now we've moved into full in transaction where any third party product or service that's being presented in the cart, we can power and make relevant to each individual customer. So someone going to a concert in New York doesn't see parking because they're not going to drive, but someone going to a concert out in you know, the country will definitely see the parking option. So they're the sorts of problems that we're trying to solve. Um, when you solve them, you know, you double the profitability of those companies you're working with. But it's a journey, you know, we've got to constantly be building in uh, each of the use cases and solving each of the integrations. And so it's taken us uh, a while to build the core technical uh, infrastructure and then a while for people to believe that we could do what we could do and then to prove the use cases out and get the trust and then get to the next level. But we've got 3,000 brands now that use our product and we work with some of the biggest enterprise e-commerce operators in the world and they trust Rock to handle their data, they trust us to power their personalization recommendation and to deliver all these different things that we do. Bruce's experience building his own business and then Jetstar meant he has some pretty significant experience in managing finances and he has a really clear view on how startups should think about capital. If you've got an ambitious mission, you need to find a way for the business to be capital efficient. And capital efficiency can come in a couple of different ways, but I think the way I wanted to build this business is I felt like the time frame that we'd need to invest from an R&D investment perspective was gonna be so long that it'd be hard for that to be all venture-backed. And so we needed to find problems that we could solve that would generate cash flow early on that would help us to make those investments. And that would create the confidence in our investors and also lessen the burden of you know, capital requirements in the business and make us much more capital efficient. And so that's why we went down the path we went down. I looked a lot at businesses like Google. I looked a lot at businesses that had found really strong sources of cash flow that had been a real lifeline to them in building the culture and infrastructure and teams and investment that would allow them to solve these really ambitious problems like organizing all the world's information. And that's the way I ended up setting up that approach. I don't think it works in every situation. It does come with trade-offs. The trade-off is uh, you need to be focused on the commercial aspects of your business delivery at the same time as you're trying to build out the next phase of business. And that's hard because you, you need the dexterity as a leader to be able to be focusing on lots of different things in the business. And so that's not for everyone. I mean, it'd be nice just to focus on one thing, you know, I'm just building. I don't have to worry about revenue and commercial teams and client happiness and all those sorts of things at the same time. But the freedom it gives you when something like COVID happens or where a unique opportunity happens where you've got this strong financial base in, in the business where you know no matter what happens, this business will survive and will prosper because it's built from such a strong foundation. It gives you this incredible sense of freedom uh, and take some of the pressure away where you otherwise I think would make somewhat suboptimal long-term value decisions. And so I often see founders that are managing the business to the next fundraising round. I don't think that's healthy. You know, it's hard to recruit, attract, create the sense of security if everything's built on, you know, the promise of getting the next round. That, that's just my strong belief, but, you know, everyone goes about it differently and there's plenty of successful cases of people that have gone about it completely the opposite to me and there's you know there's there's a few successful cases of people going about it the way i've done it so i don't i don't think there's necessarily one right way but that just fits better with who i am and what i found was important from a principal perspective for bruce alignment was always the most important element of his relationship with his investors and his advice for all founders is to focus on this specifically from my perspective, I was always interested in people that were interested in the problem we were trying to solve and had the same commitment to the length of time it would take to solve it. So for me, I was interested in partners in growth in terms of you know seeing through the mission and helping me build the business. 
but I wanted them to help me build the business through the ultimate evolution to the point where we would exit, you know, or get to a whatever, deliver the mission, whatever that looked like. And so a lot of people I spoke to have very defined, you know, mandates where they invest to this point and then they need to exit or they have fixed time horizons. And for me, that wasn't going to work. I wasn't going to, I didn't want the business to be beholden to needing to be a public company by a certain date or needing to be X, Y, Z by a certain date. I wanted us to have the flexibility to really spend the time we needed to get the, the basic stuff right. That's the way we ended up picking our investment partners. And yes, we've been picky. Interestingly enough, you know, with, with some of the recent fundraising rounds we've done, they haven't actually been as much. I mean, some of it's been used to fund acquisitions and growth, but a significant portion has also been used to buy out early investors that we think, you know, wanted to exit the business and, you know, w w didn't want to be there for the long term. And so we've, we've really managed that uh, capital flow and investor selection very closely at the same time as thinking through the board, thinking through the management team and all the other things, you know, that are required to get us there. One of the things I most admire about Bruce is the way that he seems to somehow look at problems through a prism, assessing complex problems from multiple angles before deciding how to proceed. And his philosophy on team building is no less considered. So I think as businesses evolve, there's lots of things that founders need to think about. The hardest thing, for instance, is uh, getting an initial team to get to a point of success. And then the next hardest thing is how do you scale and take a business global? Then the next inflection point you'll get to is when a business gets to a certain scale, decision-making needs to change inside the organization uh, for it to continue to grow. And each of those inflection points requires different leadership skills, not in every department, but requires different leadership skills in certain departments. And in sometimes, you know, in terms of decision-making, it might be across the board. But it's important as a founder to understand when you're going to get those inflection points and to be thinking ahead of the curve. So almost preempting where you're going to have issues with talent, capability, leadership skills, uh, and investing ahead of the curve is the most important thing you can do. The one thing that will define, from my experience, success or failure in a business is having the right leadership team in place. You know, you can do a lot to uh, fix things on the fly, but if you're caught in a world where you don't have strong leadership, you'll be forever chasing your tail of things that should be done uh, within the organization that you end up doing or you end up needing to get deep on. And whatever you're doing is distracting you from getting to your core mission, you know. And, and so it's important to think about the time you spend on a daily basis or a weekly basis and think about are you investing it in the right areas. And it's very easy to get caught up in the wrong areas. And so my leadership philosophy is putting a team together is very much like a sporting team. You want to make sure that you've got the right players on the field. You want to make sure as the team continues to progress that you're winning games. You want to make sure that players are comfortable moving to support other positions. You want to make sure also if you've got weak players in certain positions that people are not covering those positions all the time and you're calling those out and putting the right people into those positions. And as the business gets bigger, the game gets harder um, and you get tougher competition. And so you're constantly having to step up the, the team, train them, develop them, put new players in, you know, and you've got to constantly think about it like that. You know, it's like going in and playing a competitive game of sport. And you've got, if you're playing it to win, you need to make sure you've got the right team on the field. Or otherwise, it's going to be very, very, very hard to win that game. The other thing I'd say is as you go through some of these inflection points, as you're starting up, you're all going to be in a single room. It's very easy to get consensus. The style of decision-making can be anything almost, but it's more than likely going to be very directive, fast-paced, and move quickly, and everyone's going to feel good about it because you're getting a lot of stuff done. As that business starts to scale and becomes more geographically dispersed, bigger, the decision-making will need to change. Um, and one of the hardest transitions you'll need to make is making sure you've got the senior leadership in place to enable the business to continue to scale. And that's a really hard transition to make. And you want to be thinking about that well ahead of the curve. Is that that is the definition of you know running a marathon at the same time as doing heart and lung transplant. <laughs> because you're trying to deliver the growth of the business that your investors and you and yourself and the budgets and the success of the business everyone wants to see in the business, 
at the same time as changing our core components of the business. And, and when you're trying to grow a business and change core components of the business, it's a very tough challenge. Speaking of tough challenges, Bruce and his family relocated to New York a few years ago to manage expansion into the US. And so when COVID hit, Bruce was right in the eye of the storm in both a physical and a financial sense. It was kind of surreal. You know, we had our team in Thailand in January for our global kickoff, which is our annual offsite. And we were all sitting around in Thailand having a great time doing training and celebrating successes and talking about the year ahead. And, you know, there's a distant story of what was going on in China, but it felt like a million miles away. And then we got back to New York and it felt, felt like five minutes later, we we're in the middle of this, you know, the world had just turned upside down and you could no longer travel. All the offices had to be shut down uh, and, you know, everything was becoming uh, very different than it was yesterday. And the hardest thing for us was seeing uh, ultimately our business took a big hit like all business in the first couple of weeks and then, you know, has recovered and we've seen, we've, we've done well out of the e-commerce boom, but we've seen these powers of haves and haves nots and that was really tough. So we support a lot of clients in travel and entertainment vertical and through no fault of their own, you know, the entertainment vertical got was down more than 95% as people just stopped going to concerts, stopped going to sporting events, stopped going to movies. And seeing clients like that suffer was tremendously tough. Um, and on the flip side, we saw retailers and subscription clients and people in food delivery and all these other industries and their business doubled overnight. They essentially had like a decade worth of growth in six weeks. <laughs> and, and you're looking at these haves and haves nots and it was just surreal trying to navigate it. And on one side, keep the organization focused. What was incredibly impressive was the whole team came together and just did an incredible job at actually making sure that we served every single client, chased down every opportunity, made sure that we were able to get through this uh, as a stronger team. And we didn't, we were fortunate that we, we didn't have to lay off one rock star and we were able to actually accelerate and invest in growth. And we've used this time to get to the back end stronger and invest in, in getting great talent, invest in client relationships. Um, but we saw a lot of clients uh, like my old business, Jetstar, tremendously infected. Uh, and, um, you know, it was, it's very, very tough to see thousands of people lose their job through no fault of their own. I think the long-term impact we've seen, so the short-term productivity and client-wise and business-wise all been great. The interesting other impact we're seeing through COVID has been this toll it takes on people through spending all day on Zoom. We underestimate, I think, the lack of human connectivity and how important that is. And I sort of liken it to like we've got this this can of goodwill that we can suck down over X number of months and people can be productive and functional and all that works. But when you suck down the, the, the reserves of goodwill, which is the cultural connectivity through no physical connection, it becomes very tough. So we've been looking for great ways for little teams to get together. We've been looking for ways uh, where some regions are getting better to get people back together, even if it's in a park playing football at, you know, six feet away from each other, just so they can see each other and have a little bit of human contact and a little bit of interaction, which is not, okay, we've got an agenda and we've got four things to cover off and, you know, all the things that Zoom becomes uh, exhausting over a period of time. So that's been interesting. I, I was surprised how well the productivity uh, stayed high and I was also surprised at the long-term consequences being the way they have been as well. I wanted to end our conversation by talking about culture. It's something I personally love to hear about, but I also think that being able to define it reveals what behaviors and ambitions get rewarded in a high growth environment. So I asked Bruce to give us his opinion. I think culture needs to be natural, needs to be a part of the DNA. So one of the things uh, I tend to lean away from is you see a lot of businesses that say they need to define culture and they put posters up on the wall and they try and define who they are or who they want to be is more of the point. I think culture has to be ingrained in your behaviours. And so from my perspective, culture was a very natural thing because I came out of a business where culture was important and it was a natural part of who we were. And so we just started living and breathing that culture inside, rocked on day one, you know. And 
we didn't actually formally articulate it to a few years in. I mean, we're a small group of people in a small office and we just lived a certain way and we behaved a certain way and we attracted people that also shared those same values and beliefs. And so when we articulated it, it was very easy because we were just articulating something we've been living every day. Um, and that made it easy to codify, you know, the types of behaviours that we, we wanted inside the business. But our leadership behaviour is really, you know, relatively simple. You know, we have this belief that we want people that are super smart. You know, intellectual horsepower is super important. We're solving some of the toughest problems, but they need to be humble. So we say smart with humility because we feel like if you wind up with a jerk in a team or someone that's all, that's all about their ego, it's very hard for teams to come together and have open, passionate debates about these problems in a productive sense if other members around the room feel like you know the person on the other side is doing it for their personal interest. And so it's very hard to break down those barriers. So we say smart with humility is, a, is the most you know, tangible sort of thing you'll see when you walk into, into Rocked. Conquer new frontiers which we want people that are passionate uh, around taking on challenges, who are curious about the world, who are happy to fail, because for them it's about exploration and it's about the excitement of the journey of discovery. People that are afraid of change typically are not going to feel comfortable in that environment. So we want to be really clear. Like if, you, if you're looking for the same status quo, same thing every day, and that, that's your ideal, rock's not for you. you know? So we're very upfront about that. Uh, we have another one called customer obsessed, which is, you know, we want to play the long game, whether it's an internal customer or an external customer. It's about understanding that short-term wins uh, should never come at the expense of long-term relationships. And therefore, you know, if you've got a BD, for instance, that's trying to chase a quota, they should never put a, uh, that quota at the expense of that long-term uh, client relationship. And so we're quite happy to sacrifice short-term revenues to deliver the right long-term outcomes for, for a client. And the last one for us is, is enjoy the ride, which is probably a little bit of our strain that's coming out, but it's an articulation of we spend a lot of time at work and we spend a lot of time doing things that we're passionate about and we do it because we're passionate. And so for us, it's not about a destination. We're not trying to get to an IPO or an exit. It's not just a financial thing. For us, it's actually, we really enjoy what we do and we want other people that are passionate about what they do because when work doesn't feel like work, that's when you achieve some of your best outcomes. I hope you enjoyed the ride of this conversation with Bruce Buchanan from Rocked. If you want to learn more about Rocked, you can head to rokt.com and poke around the website. That's rocked.com. Thanks as always to our fabulous producer, Rami, and to you for spending time with me again this week. I do have some sad-ish news about this podcast, which is that from here on, we'll mostly be shifting to a more ad hoc basis. We set out with the intention to tell the real and often extraordinary founding stories behind the Square Peg portfolio. And for the most part, we've covered it. So I'll add new episodes to series when we invest in new companies. And so for now, all that's left to say is thank you. If you have loved listening and haven't left a review or a rating on this series, please do so. And if you want to get in touch, you can reach me at Imogen, that's I-M-O-G-E-N, at spc.vc. Thanks so much. Hopefully speak to you soon.